Beaver Basin, and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard has a Star Talk report on this week's lunar eclipse that takes place Wednesday before dawn. Christine San Jose narrates along the Poets Row on the theme of greening. Farm to Table podcast, today's main ingredient, highlights asparagus. Mickey Usup speaks with farmer Brian Fox and chef Ben Cooper about preparing them. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country here on Radio Catskill. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. Egyptian mediators are holding talks with Israel and Hamas today in an effort to solidify their fragile ceasefire that took effect early Friday. From Jerusalem, NPR's Jackie Northam reports so far, the truce is holding. There were clashes between Palestinians and Israeli police at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem's old city on Friday, but otherwise there's been calm. Israeli military are assessing the 11-day-old conflict. A senior officer said more than 1,000 airstrikes had badly damaged Hamas's military infrastructure, but he also wondered how long it would be until the next battle with Hamas. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is due to arrive in the area in the coming days as part of U.S. efforts to build on the ceasefire. Meanwhile, people in Gaza continue to dig out. More than 1,800 homes and buildings were destroyed, and there's a shortage of clean water and electricity. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Jerusalem. The top U.S. general for the Middle East, Frank McKenzie, has paid an unannounced visit to Syria. He's praising plans to repatriate 100 Iraqi families from a huge refugee camp in Syria, which he says is a breeding ground for ISIS insurgents. That's what concerns me, is the ability of uh, ISIS to reach out, touch these young people, and turn them uh, in a way that uh, unless we can find a way to take it back, It's going to make us pay a steep price down the road. The Al-Hal camp in northeast Syria is home to tens of thousands of displaced people. Marine General McKenzie says all nations need to repatriate their citizens, de-radicalize them, and reintegrate them. Congressional Republicans say major differences remain with the White House over President Biden's major infrastructure plan, despite the president's offer to reduce the scope and cost of the proposal. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the Democrats' counteroffer would cut money for roads, bridges, and other major projects. The Biden administration has cut the overall price tag of its infrastructure package to $1.7 trillion, about $500 billion less than it was. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the new numbers more closely align with Senate Republicans' requests. In our view, this is the art, I should say, of seeking common ground. This proposal exhibits a willingness to come down in size while also staying firm in areas that are most vital to rebuilding our infrastructure and industries of the future. 
Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has said Republicans could support a package up to $800 billion. He also says Biden's plan to roll back Trump-era tax cuts is where Republicans draw the line. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. This is NPR. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections. With showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on our show today, Christine San Jose narrates on the theme of greening along the Poets Row. On Farm to Table podcast, today's main ingredient, Mickey Yusef speaks with farmer Brian Fox from Salem Mountain Vegetables and Ben Cooper from Here and Now Brewing about preparing asparagus. First up is Keith Hubbard with his Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Country, I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. A short lived total lunar eclipse will occur in the pre dawn hours of Wednesday. Totality will only last for 15 minutes, but the moon will take a little more than three hours to fully cross Earth's inner shadow. The last time a total lunar eclipse occurred was almost two and a half years ago. Unfortunately for those of us living on the East Coast, totality will occur after the moon sets. The most we will be able to see will be the moon entering the outermost part of Earth's shadow, and to see this you will need a clear southwestern horizon. The moon will enter the outer part of Earth's shadow around 4.45 a.m., at which point the moon will be only 6 degrees above the horizon. If you watch the moon, you will notice that the left side of the moon will slowly darken somewhat. At the time of moonset at 5.30 a.m., a little less than half of the moon's face will be darkened. This darkening effect will be very slight and may not be noticeable at all. A lunar eclipse occurs when Earth is positioned directly between the sun and the moon. But a lunar eclipse does not occur at every full moon due to the moon's tilted orbit about Earth. Most of the time, the moon passes to the north or to the south of Earth's shadow. This is the only total lunar eclipse of the year, so be sure to view what small portion of the event we can see on Wednesday morning. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future StarTalk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and StarTalk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. For WJFF and Farm and Country, 
This is Christine San Jose. It's greening along the poet's row. It is, it is. Buds, leaves. Here's American poet Sarah Teasdale, who was writing of springs, oh, a hundred years ago. First, April. The roofs are shining from the rain. The sparrows twitter as they fly. And with a windy April grace, the little clouds go by. Yet the backyards are bare and brown, with only one unchanging tree. I could not be so sure of spring, save that it sings in me. Oh, that was earlier. Now we have even flowers, don't we? So here's Sarah Teasdale with April a bit farther along. Willow in your April gown, delicate and gleaming. Do you mind in years gone by, or my dreaming? Spring was like a call to me that I could not answer. I was chained to loneliness, I, the dancer. Willow twinkling in the sun, still your leaves and hear me. I can answer spring at last. Love is near me. Oh, perhaps not always the most profound of poets, Sarah Teasdale, sometimes even sliding into what might seem like indulgent melodrama. But you know what? She didn't have an easy life. Well, officially, of course, we're way above letting little details like the poet's private life sneak into our appreciation of the poetry. You can't help thinking that Sarah really should have married Vachel Lindsay. He was crazy about her. Zany poet he was, poor he was, but she'd have done much better with him than she did with that old money bag she married. And I am certainly not going to tell you anything about the private life of our next poet because she happens to be my very good friend, Susan Luckstone Jaffa, and you will see for yourself that Susan is never less than deeply thoughtful and sensitive. Here is Susan with April Morning. I still need gloves to walk the dog, but the birds know what's coming. I hear their first tentative mating murmurs at the property's edges, Two soft notes from a chickadee, then one in bold red from a cardinal. The angle of the sun sends its own signal of the changing season, as does, for reasons I can't explain, the long white puff of an old contrail dividing the suddenly brilliant sky. My tired winter shoes are no match for the snow's icy surface. Thawed yesterday, it froze overnight to a glistening slick. Navigating the slight downgrade back to the house, I let the dog pull me part way. In a few hours, the ice will melt again, and the dirt road, so hard and cold now, will yield wetly under our footsteps. Who knows where the time goes? My teenage friends and I tuned our first guitars and debated the key. Across the morning sky, all the birds are leaving, we sang, thinking more about the placement of our fingers than the dizzying passage of time. Today, a double V of geese glide overhead so high they seem silent. I remember the chord changes, our long hair falling over the frets, the ribbon of years 
that stretched before us the bliss of certitude. But it wasn't all certitude, was it, Susan? I remember an awful lot of angst in my guitar-playing days. You know, have you noticed that a really good poem will usually set you to thinking about something to talk over with a friend if you're lucky enough to have a friend who enjoys poetry, as I hope you all do. So, yes, the years stretched before us, the bliss of certitude. Did we really think that when we were in our guitar-playing days? Let's finish with a little bit more of that Sarah Teasdale. It was such fun. Willow twinkling in the sun, still your leaves and hear me. I can answer spring at last. Love is near me. This has been Christine San Jose for Farm and Country along the Poets Row. Today's Main Ingredient, a program designed to help you bring local farm-fresh food to your table. I'm your host, Mickey Usups, and my guests today are farmer Brian Fox from Salem Mountain Natural Vegetable Farm near Waymart, Pennsylvania, and Chef Ben Cooper from Here and Now Brewing Company in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. We'll be talking about today's main ingredient, asparagus. And I have to say, gentlemen, I'm very excited that asparagus is our first vegetable in our series, mostly because it is the one vegetable I feel like I know a little bit about. And it is one of my favorite vegetables, although I often say I'm not particularly vegetable savvy. So this is a journey for me and our listeners at the same time to learn from you folks all about the wonders of asparagus. The one thing I do know about asparagus, Brian, is that it is a perennial. It comes up every year. Can you tell me a little bit about how it grows on the farm? Well, asparagus, it really likes a, a rich, well-drained soil. It really likes sand. Basically, there's a couple ways to get asparagus. You can buy seeds and start them yourself, or you can buy what's called a, a rhizome or plants that are one to two years old. Kind of looks like a an octopus with a little bud at the center, and then it's tendrils hanging off that. Basically, you, lay, you dig a trench, well composted in the trench, and then you lay your uh, your crowns in the trench about a foot apart. And then just cover it with enough soil so that you can't see the crowns. And then the asparagus will begin growing. And then once it uh, starts growing, then you continue filling the trench in around the asparagus. And then uh, first year, the ferns, which is the top part of the asparagus that we eat, when it first comes out of the ground, it looks like a spear. But as it uh, gets taller and taller... And continues to grow, it opens up and it, we call that a fern, but it actually looks like dill. It's much bigger. I've seen it six, eight feet tall and a stalk as big around as a broom handle. But once wow. uh, you plant the asparagus, you don't actually get to eat any for at least a year. Two years is probably better. And then the patch really doesn't get really going good until about the fourth to fifth year. So a well-maintained patch could last 25, 30 years. Wow, that long. So this huge stalk that you saw, multiple, many feet tall and big around, would that still be edible? Well, it would be. When it first comes out of the ground, we've had some asparagus that's over an inch in diameter. 
which is completely tender when it's first coming out of the ground. Once it begins to elongate, there's a certain point there just to support itself. It makes a lot more ligonin and it becomes almost like a tree. This isn't like you plant it this spring and you're going to have asparagus in a month. No, (laughs) this is a long-term project. And where you put it, you know, you want to make sure that you know, you're not going to build a shed there or you want a patio there in, a, in three years, you know. So wherever you put asparagus, know that it's going to be there for a good portion of your life. I did not know that. Apparently it grows to be at the edges of field. I'm assuming that's probably where it finds that sandy, well-drained, rich soil that it's looking for. What are some of the challenges to growing it in the field, though? Well, we grow it organically and probably the two major things. One is weed control. We mow the asparagus off either late fall or early spring. And then we set our rototiller to very shallow and we'll rototill the top of the bed just to kind of break up and to get rid of any weeds that are growing. We didn't get to it this year, but we're going to begin trying it in the next few years, is covering the entire bed with a piece of tarp for the winter. Basically, I don't know if you've ever left a a board or a piece of tarp or something sitting on the ground. Two months later, there's no grass growing under there. It's just dirt. The the worms and and bacteria have eaten up everything. So we're going to try that as a long-term for weed control. And then the other thing, there's a beetle called asparagus beetle. Um, Mm -hmm. It loves asparagus. It's not that detrimental to an established um, crop. Your first and second year planting, what can happen is the asparagus beetles will strip off all of the tender outside of the asparagus fern and essentially kill it. When you harvest it, you're basically bent over the entire uh, time you're harvesting it. It is, um, so the asparagus, the crown that I was talking about planting earlier, that's basically where your asparagus spears will come from. And they'll, they'll actually grow up through the soil, push through the soil. And when the asparagus is anywhere from eight to 16 inches tall, that we call that a spear. Uh, basically, you just bend over and you can either break it off or you can cut it right at the ground level. Biggest patch that my cousin's father planted, which was seven 300-foot rows of asparagus. I could pick 120 pounds off there in about four hours. It's a short season for asparagus. Yeah. A lot of work, but it only lasts for a little while. Six to eight weeks is about it. I've seen it coming out of the ground in the middle of April, but it's pretty slow growing by then. But normally our season here is about around the first week of May till about the third week of June. And then that's about it. Fantastic. And that's actually an excellent segue to the next section of our program, where we're talk about what we do with asparagus once we cut it off um, from the plant at the farm and get it to the farmer's market or to the store. And our chef today is uh, Ben from the Here and Now Brewing Company in Honesdale, PA, where they make some amazing different kinds of food. We're using a lot of local ingredients. And uh, Chef Ben, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. The first question is, okay, when you go to buy asparagus, whether it's at the farmer's market or at the store, how do you know how much you need? I think it all depends on exactly how you're going to use it. I am also a huge fan of asparagus. And as you guys mentioned, the, the short season here locally, I tend to eat a lot of it myself. I usually use it as sort of a focus, like the main component of dinner sometimes. So be looking for about three quarters of a pound, half pound per person. As a side dish, I think a quarter pound is fine. Everybody cuts asparagus. You cut the bottoms off. My understanding is you don't necessarily have to do that. Yes, that is correct. Since the dawn of time, since people started eating asparagus, there's sort of, uh, especially as cooks and in kitchens, a lot of times we'll see 
and sort of taking one stock and just putting each end in both hands and bending, then where that stock snaps usually is a gauge of where you'll line that up with the rest of them. And a lot of chefs will just cut off the ends there and throw them out as they tend to be a little bit more fibrous and woody towards the bottom of the stem. And that is pretty wasteful to throw them out, you know, a little bit more time intensive, but well worth it is to actually just take the whole stock and peel it. A vegetable peeler works pretty well, but also a, like a sharp paring knife starting at the bottom where you can kind of put the tip of the knife in and and sort of feel the tough outer skin and then angling the knife up towards the stem and just removing that sort of fibrous peel on the outside, depending on where the farmers are harvesting that asparagus from. I've found a lot of times in farmers markets and locally that the entire stock is edible. It's sometimes more in grocery store and stuff when they're looking for bunches that are totally uniform. And when you do that, you're liable to have them cut more towards the soil where the plant's growing. So it will be a more fibrous stem. But peeling from the bottom towards the tip of the stalk is a good way to get the most out of your asparagus. If you do that, is there any special way you need to store it then? The thing about asparagus is it will lose its freshness quite quickly after harvesting. A lot of the sugar that's stored in the plant, a lot of that sugar gets eaten up by the plant as it sits. So to slow that, we want to try to get it cold as soon as possible. And also, if you have the space in your refrigerator to treat the stalks just as you would cut flowers where you can just remove a quarter inch of the bottom and then fill a container with a little bit of cold water and stick these stalks with the bottom in in just a couple inches of water in your fridge like that. But also if you're limited on space, simply just taking some paper towels and soaking them in some cold water and wrapping them around the asparagus and then putting them in a plastic bag will help prolong the shelf life. How do you like to cook? What do you like to do? asparagus? One of the first things that I like to do after peeling is blanching, basically cooking the asparagus a short amount of time in a big, big pot of boiling salted water. And what this is going to do is really help preserve that awesome bright green color. We're also going to get a little bit of seasoning from that salt in the water to just sort of bring out the bright, you know, asparagus flavor that's in there. I find it much easier to cook after blanching, whether it be on the grill, roasted, in the oven, sautéed are a couple of my favorite methods. But starting off with cooking them for three to four minutes in that hot salted water is really just going to bring out a lot of flavor, keep the color and really let you put it in a plethora of different recipes depending on your taste. After the blanching, if you're going to use, you know, sauteed and some garlic butter and lemon juice, which is a really classic preparation, you can just take tongs and and just get the asparagus right out of the water while it's still warm, put it in a pan with the butter, uh, garlic, and just finish cooking to your liking that way. But I also, I really like asparagus used in cold preparations Because again, being in the spring and there's just sort of this abundance of fresh, green, delicate vegetables coming out. So after blanching for a couple minutes, you can fill a pot with nice cold salted ice water and then dunk the stalks into that. And that will stop the cooking process. And then you can cut them further. You can shave them further. You can add them to salads or use them as garnishes for cold preparations like that. Um, And I know you'll be sharing a recipe with us. We're not going to go through the recipe, but can you tell us a little bit about what it is and why you chose it? 
I'd love to. Um, it's actually, we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, utilizing all of the vegetable and to optimize, you know, its tenderness and everything. Utilizing that in a broth or like a vegetable stock is one of my favorites. Um, also, if you did go the peeling route, all of those peels that you remove from the stock simmered in just water with some other aromatics uh, makes a really, really awesome asparagus broth. And that can be used as a lot of bases for soups to cook with, to saute with. A glass of cold asparagus stock in, in the morning is actually really tasty and, and a great way to start your day. Very healthy. I'm going to share a recipe that is utilizing the, the whole asparagus from soup to nuts uh, and sort of how you can take, you know, your peelings and your scraps make a really nice uh, seasoned broth and then use the rest of the stock as sort of your garnish or, or the meat to go along with this broth as well. Well, gentlemen, I'm really excited. That was a great discussion about the wonders of asparagus. Joining us now is registered and licensed dietitian and certified diabetes educator, Carol Kanier, who's also the community health manager at Wayne Memorial Hospital. She's here for some words about the advantages of eating today's main ingredient, asparagus. Carol, welcome to the program. Most asparagus is green, and that usually means healthy to those of us who are not particularly vegetable savvy, but asparagus has a lot going for it when it comes to nutrition. Can you talk a little bit about its place in a healthy diet? So like you said, Mickey, asparagus does come in green, but it also comes in purple and white. Despite the different colors, asparagus does have many health benefits. The most important thing about asparagus, it's really packed with nutrients. Um, it has tons of vitamins. It has vitamin A, vitamin C, E, K, vitamin B6, as well as some other nutrients like folate, iron, copper, calcium, and a little bit of protein. It's also rich in antioxidants, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. I think the best part about asparagus, it's actually low in calories and low in fat with the amount of volume you get from asparagus. So for example, one cup of asparagus has only 32 calories. What does 32 calories equal? It actually equals one and a half Hershey Kisses, but the health benefits are so much better. And it also contains a lot of water, which helps with weight loss. It does. So, you know, when you talk about some other health benefits, asparagus, it, it helps you feel less bloated and it helps promote weight loss. And how it does this is asparagus actually contains a specific amino acid called asparagine, which is a natural diuretic. You lose excessive water, excessive salt, which in turn can make you feel less bloated. And if you have high blood pressure, it can help you control your blood pressure. Asparagus is also loaded with fiber, both insoluble and soluble fibers, which help your cholesterol level. If someone does have diabetes, higher fiber has been known to help stabilize blood sugars. Also, the best benefit to a fiber is making you feel full. When you feel full, you eat less, and that helps promote weight loss. Does it matter how it's cooked? With any kind of vegetable, um, and even especially asparagus, you don't want to overcook it because when you overcook or boil any kind of vegetable, especially asparagus, you may leach, meaning let go a lot of those nutrients and vitamins that I talked about. So cooking it just to that tender point keeps a lot of those nutrients, does release a lot of those uh, health benefits and those vitamins and nutrients when you cook it. Well, thank you very much, Carol. 
We'll be checking back with you each week as we talk about the different made ingredient. Thank you so much, Mickey, for having me on the show today. To learn more about today's main ingredient, our recipes, and our guests, visit us on the web at www.seedsgroup.net. Thank you, everyone out there, for joining us for today's main ingredient. I'm your host, Mickey Uzups. Our program is produced by Seeds of Northeastern Pennsylvania to promote renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, and sustainable living in today's world. Today's main ingredient is made possible in part by a grant from the Greater Pike County Community Foundation. Thanks for joining us. you enjoyed our show this week with production by volunteers Keith Hubbard and Christine San Jose. Special thanks goes to today's main ingredient Farm to Table podcast produced by Jane Bollinger from Seeds of Northeast Pennsylvania. This has been your host Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on WJFF Radio Catskill. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org On this week's On the Media, we know COVID-19 likely came from a bat. But how did it get to us? We are in this pandemic that's been ongoing for about one and a half years now. There has been no actual investigation of how it began. It began.